Good afternoon, everyone, and welcome to the fifth in our series of Planet Talks here at WOMAD in, or WOMADLADE in 2014. My name's Bernie Hobbs. I'm from the ABC Science Unit, and it's with great delight that I'm here on this warm but not hideously hot day uh, to look a bit into the future. We've been looking in the Planet for, um, series so far, the Planet Talks, at, at the current state, at the threats and, uh, and, and what sorts of actions we need to take. Today we're really looking at getting moving for, towards the future, looking at, um, because we know the, the situation with climate change, uh, the way it's tracking, we've had the reports this week, this year, this week, this morning, this afternoon in particular, we're looking at what's happening in our cities. And uh, to discuss that with me, I've got a panel of esteemed, all of them locals, uh, esteemed academics to, uh, to look at our changing cities. And in particular, this very scary notion of the 100 million people city, which uh, we might do away with very early on in the piece, I think. Um, on my very far left is Professor Tom Wrigley, whose background is in mathematics and meteorology, um, has done a lot of work in, in climate research over the years here and, and abroad, lured back to Adelaide quite recently for reasons best kept to the Hills District and wineries there, I suspect. No, no, I'm sure it was, a, it was out of pure research intent. Um, next to Tom is Dr Amy Albrecht, who's a mathematician and lecturer at South Australia, has done a lot of research in transport and improving the efficiency of transport. Um, she's also done some serious test driving of speed vehicles. So uh, Dark Horse, Amy, um, there this afternoon, really bringing the practical front to the transport picture and making a move on me with his arm, doing the old <laughs> yawn at the cinema trick uh, beside me. Nice work, Steph. Uh-oh. <laughs> knew I should not have opened that door. Um, Professor Stefan Lehman, who's, uh, who's an architect and an urbanist also at the university and uh, holds the chair in sustainable architecture here at, at UniSA. Um, does that mean you only hold it tentatively? Is sustainable design. Oh, sustainable called. design. I'm sorry. It's because you're wearing a black shirt. I see black shirt, I think architecture. Uh, so, um, so what we're looking at this afternoon, and I'll just clarify this because it is, there's a different description depending on which program that you're looking at, but the one we're working from is the original one, Climate Change and 100 Million Person Cities. Now, the event is being filmed um, by the ABC, so we've got two cameras down the back. If you do need to get up or leave at any time, please don't come through the middle aisle if you can help it because it just makes uh, it makes us a bit tricky to edit around your great silhouette as you're doing bunny ears or whatever when you leave. So uh, if you can stick to the sides, that'd be great. And obviously, this is about not only hearing from our experts and their thoughts and um, ideas and challenges, but we want to hear from you later on as well. So we'll have a question section for the last 15 minutes of our session. But let's get started, first of all, with this idea, which I have to say shocked and kind of appalled me, of one million person cities. Um, what did I say? 100, well see, I'm from Sydney, I don't like any big city. Uh, the idea of 100 million person cities. Is that something that's ever going to happen? Well, my, I have a personal view on this, and that is I was rather skeptical about the possibility when we first saw the title, uh, and um, the biggest city in the world now is Tokyo, which has 37 million. Mm. And Tokyo is still growing rather slowly, but it seems that cities, once they get up to around about that size, become uh, st you know, static and don't 
grow because they're too big you know, to actually work efficiently. So 100 million is perhaps unlikely, but on the other hand, the real point here is mega cities, you know, big cities like Tokyo is today and some of the Chinese cities and cities in India are today. So that, you know, that's really what we're focusing on, the general issue rather than the number. And Stefan, do what? you think 100? Yes. No, while there won't be 100 million city, we already have urban regions that have 8,200 million people, for instance, the Beijing, Tianjin, Hebei urban mega cluster in China, and there are others, the Pearl River Delta, um, they have already 100 million. Uh, it's not one city, it's an area that is urbanized and where five, six cities have grown together, forming a huge, vast urbanized area, which means all those residents find it very hard to get out. Mm. So that's why it's so important to reconnect with nature within the cities. And we'll be looking a bit at how we can um, help these cities evolve in a sustainable way. And just on that, Bernie, actually the fastest growing cities are the medium-sized cities. Those many, many cities that have two, three, four, five million people, they are very fast growing, not only in Asia, also of course in Africa and in South America. Um, in Europe, most of the cities are stagnating. Um, Amy, is it conceivable that in this kind of mega uh, lopolis um, that, that Stefan's talking about, or even in um, cities bigger than, uh, than Tokyo, if we end up with those in the future, is it conceivable that we could have a transport system that functioned in those places? Well, I don't see why not. I mean, um, Tokyo already has a very efficient public mass transit system. Um, so it's about designing solutions for these large cities. Will it be a carless future for places like that? No, I don't think so. I think there's going to be three prongs to this and this is what makes this problem so exciting is that we need to reduce emissions, obviously from transport, but we also need to reduce congestion and we need to change individual mindset. So we need to make sure people are thinking about alternative ways of transporting themselves around. Okay, well let's get some figures going. So Tom, um, the UN data on, on where cities actually are, bearing in mind that we have these cluster cities as well. So we'll, we'll look at what the sorts of sizes are and what the kind of growth we're seeing now and then we'll just project forward to about 2050 and deconstruct how we could have a really well-functioned, sustainable um, urban area. Yeah, so there is a wing of the United Nations that produces every two years a report on population, global population, and for a limited number of cities, projections of their population out to 2025. The global population projections go out to 2100. Well, in, in fact, they, some of them go out to 2300, which is a long, long way. <laughs> unimaginable distance <laughs> yeah, I wouldn't be betting future, my super so. on that, no. Um, and it, it is interesting uh, what Stefan said about the rapidly growing cities. In percentage terms, that's true, but uh, if you look at the big 10 million plus cities, then the ones that are growing most rapidly are cities in Africa, China, and India, in the lesser developed mm. parts of the world. And I think from the UN data that I had a look at, the biggest change from 2010 to 2025, which is a projection into the future, was for uh, Lagos in Nigeria, where the population was projected to grow over that 15-year period by 75%. And there are a number where the projections are an extra 50% population over 15 years, so which is phenomenal. What raw number are we talking about for Lagos, for example? Uh, yes, yeah, so in 2025, I think the population of that's meant to be about 23 million. So if you take 70, 
take the right fraction off, you can figure out what it was in 2010. I just don't remember that number. Okay. Stefan, is there any way that the, um, the urban landscape can grow effectively in that short of time frame by that factor? Well, such rapid urbanization is creating a whole range of challenges, as we see now in China. Mm. Uh, the air pollution, for instance, uh, not only caused by industry, but also, of course, by congestion, by traffic, transport, and by the heating system. Many of those households in China are still burning sinks that not only emit CO2 emission, but also pollute uh, and um, um, uh, have a, uh, create problems of the air. So um, you will have um, heard two days ago, three days ago, China declared war to pollution, mm. which is interesting. They're really putting now the money where the mouse is, and we talk about not only billions, but trillions of dollars invested in fixing that problem, and they have to. You know, if you are a Chinese leader and you have 1.4 billion people in your country, and many, many of those people become more and more disenchanted and unhappy, you're gonna make sure you take action. And this is where we're gonna see a lot of action. China is already the world's largest wind power nation, for instance. They've become, in no time, world's largest wind power. And uh, of course, urbanization is going around five times faster as we have experienced it in the Western world. Uh, but also the pollution issues are growing five times faster. So the pollution issues are coming from energy and transport. All kinds of reasons. Yeah. When you go to China, it's, it's pretty um, schizophrenic because <clears throat> you find some fantastic initiatives like uh, huge uh, solar farm and very big, large-scale use of renewables next to a totally polluting, dirty uh, brown coal power plant. Mm. So we, we find the whole mix of everything side by side uh, because there is such a tremendous need of energy. And at the moment, they simply do all kinds of things, but in the next two, three years, they will turn off those uh, polluting power uh, plants. That's, That's a part of a commitment from yes. this war on... They war, will turn war on, on pollution, the war on pollution. And the Chinese, you know, uh, if we talk about urban growth, at the moment there are 120 cities in China with, with more than one million population, 120. In 2030, which is not far away, it's only 15, 16 years to go, there will be over 200 cities with more than one million population in China. Mm. So this is where we see an extreme situation, and therefore we need extreme um, measures. So Stefan, I've got a question related to what you were saying, and that is, uh, how many of these big cities have uh, public transport systems? That, that work. Maybe that's a question for yeah. Amy, too. Yeah. yeah. Luckily, the public transport investment in public transport systems has been very early. Uh, I mean, Beijing would be hopelessly congested, gridlock, worse than it is already mm. if there wouldn't be a very efficient uh, subway system mm. and they constantly improve and exp extend the lines in Beijing, for instance, but same in Shanghai, Chongqing, Tianjin and other cities. Yep. But Beijing is a good example where if we don't address um, transport problems innovatively, governments have to take very severe action. So in the last month, the um, the pollution in Beijing exceeded 10 times the level of safe health um, set by the World Health Organization. So the way to react to this is the government simply says, well, we're going to restrict the number of vehicles on the road, even though they have a good mass transit system. So in Beijing now, if you want to put a new vehicle on the road, you need to go into a monthly lottery. So they've restricted the number of new cars to 15,000 in a month, and the success rate is typically 5%. 
in this lottery. Once you have a car, if the pollution on a day exceeds what the World Health Organization calls a red level, then they'll go to um, simply um, not allowing people to drive on certain days. So they have this even number, odd number license system. So on one day, all the odd numbered uh, license plate vehicles simply aren't allowed to drive. And so that's what we're trying to avoid. Definitely, because that kind of approach might, might work in a nation that's come out of a communist background, but I don't see it riding too well in Australia. I mean, is, um, do you see a way that we can really plan effectively and, and have this kind of change happening in a nation that's based on democracy? Well, the interesting thing about big cities is that um, perhaps with the exception of places like Abu Dhabi, they're not going to come out of the ground overnight. Mm. So our, our big cities are going to grow organically and we need solutions that are going to evolve with our big cities as well. So I guess this is about, um, you know, being more efficient with the transport systems that we have. So looking at ways of moving to alternative energy and to make these systems more reliable. I mean, if you were at the, the talk yesterday with Tim Flannery, um, I prefer the carrot to the stick approach, but probably not the carrot approach that Tim had in mind. Oh, thank you for that not tricky <laughs> edit at all, Amy. Uh. <laughs> but, but I, you know, I don't think we need to go down a solution um, like... Beijing, unless we have to, what we need is to incentivise people to, to take these other forms of transport. And is that working that's, well? Yeah, that's anywhere? very important to incentivise and also to change behaviour. Mm. At the core of all this is not technology. At the core of it is social innovation. Mm. We have a lot of technological innovation, but people don't uptake it and also it's not affordable. And why? Because people simply like to keep doing what they are doing. And to change behaviour and values is so extremely hard. This is why my institute is called Sustainable Design and Behavior, mm. Behavior Change. If you want to change long-lasting behavior, behavior change in the population, you're going to have to be much smarter in the way you offer choice yep. and you incentivize. You have to go beyond carrot and stick. You have to use them as well as other options. Now, if we can just take a moment and look at um, just projecting forward to something like 2035 or 2050 maybe. Will most of us, most of us, Tom, still alive then? Uh, I saw you drinking sugary drinks just before we came on, so I'm not sure about your chances. But uh, <laughs> um, I think if we look at 2050 as, um, as a place and look at Australia, maybe look at Adelaide. If, if we could see Adelaide getting to some kind of mega city size uh, by 2050, let's say 20 million, that's mega for Adelaide. That's a pretty big deal. How would Adelaide look in the picture-perfect vision of a sustainable city that meets the needs of the people and of the environment? Oh, Stefan, you can't look away for that. I'm happy, <laughs> I'm happy to take on. I just don't want to hijack the communication. Um, we'll we'll look, get to the look, transport. Look, uh, we know the fastest-growing city in Australia is Perth. Mm -hmm. Every week, almost 1,500 people arrive in the Western Australian capital. Uh, most of them have jobs lined up and they're all looking for housing, which is a major issue. Housing uh, prices have gone up. There is no affordability anymore in Perth. They all come with cars. Uh, we see now an increase of congestion in Perth. Uh, 
Uh, and it's good we talk about the Australian situation because what we have to do, we have to grow inward and compact rather than keep increasing the footprint of our cities. We have to stop doing this with very clear growth boundaries and we have to stop sprawl and instead of that we have to bring people back into the city where they can walk and so they're not dependent. We have to do away What's with the need to, to drive. That? What's going to get them back Better choice the of housing and affordability. If people live somewhere um, happily in a suburb, they're not gonna move into the Adelaide CBD uh, if it's not affordable. And if we offer them concrete boxes that are so, so nobody wants to move and in And if those. they don't have space and parks <coughs> for the kids, is that something that's yes. essential? At the same time, we have to increase green space. Now that's interesting, it sounds like, a contradiction, but what we have to do, we have to grow more compact, mixed use and walkable, and we're gonna have to move to higher densities. There's no other way. However, we're gonna have to be very smart about that. We're gonna have to offer people better choice and integrate and increase the green space. Otherwise, we have what's called the urban heat island problem. There is an interplay, an interplay between higher density of cities and cities getting hotter and hotter. The urban microclimate of Adelaide, for instance, has already changed, and we see now cities like Sydney, Melbourne, Canberra had a heat wave. We had four heat waves already, and we've broken all the records in Adelaide this year. It's the hottest summer ever we just went through, and so we have to change the way we design and construct and, and run and operate the city, not dependent on air condition and what kind of materials we choose that do not trap the heat. Otherwise, it becomes like a baking oven and you just need more air condition and more energy and you, you emit more greenhouse gas emission. But there is another more general uh, issue here and that uh, particularly with regard to Perth versus Adelaide uh, and that is that where do the people come from and why do they want to go into the, in, into the CBD or, or, or to the general suburbia? And how long will that mining boom last? Yeah, well, that's a part of the reason why, uh, why there is that growth in Perth and... Uh, and, and unless we're able to uh, develop Olympic Dam, uh, and that's another interesting issue, whether or not that's possible, uh, then there wouldn't be that magnet to draw people into Adelaide from surrounding or interstate other uh, areas, surrounding rural areas or interstate uh, so urban areas. So but I mean, looking forward to 2050 with, um, with uh, refugees from climate change with, um, you know, sea level refugees, you, you don't expect that Adelaide, that Australian cities will be growing for reasons other than people coming for, for jobs based on resources booms? I'm not going to make a prediction for anything like that out to 2050, but of course, you know, that's, so that's one of these issues about, you know, what's possible and what's likely. I mean, that is possible, mm. but I, my judgment is that that's not likely, uh, and there are projections of Australian growth rate and uh, growth rate in the major cities in Australia, you know, and they don't show major changes over the next 45 years or 35 years, I, think, I should say. So, I mean, I guess it's imaginable that Adelaide might grow to twice the size, but you did mention, you know, 20 million. Well, I, I think that's not, not very, very likely at yes. all. We but are here two in million fantasy for Adelaide land, though, so. Tom, so just play along for a little bit. <laughs> 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 um, now, Amy, for the kind of um, description that, uh, that Stefan gave to, you know, to relieve the urban island effect to, you know, uh, to, to make living in a city 
amenable for people. What are the implications for transport, both public and private, for that kind of high density living? And let's stick with the 20 million in Adelaide in, at 2050. Well, many of the solutions are in urban design, so we need to create villages within our cities. So we need to work, go to school, recreate close to where we live to kind of reduce this need to travel vast distances across our city. And is do you create a village within a city or does it naturally and organically grow that way? Does it need, is it a bit of both? Know, you, you can push it and uh, it takes five years and you can create it. We see it now happening in some way in Barangaroo, in the city where you live, um, which which is a fantastic example By of... By adding another casino, of you low create carbon. a I don't like. I don't like that casino. I hate that aspect. You're right. Uh, that was a big mistake, I believe. They should have done without a casino. But we see urban villages, like Bowdoin Urban Village is a big project here, uh, not far from here, which is going to be a great success story where people want to live because they can walk to the CBD and to the park and they can do away with the car for, uh, for maybe half of their time and they can bike if we put in safe cycling. That's very important. 50 years ago, exactly 50 years ago, a gentleman called uh, Donald um, wrote, no. No, no, do, um, <laughs> wrote a book called The Lucky Country. Huh. Donald Horn. Horn. Thanks, yes. Donald Horn. And this book um, was kind of a milestone 50 years ago. And now, if we do not get this right, we're in the danger of losing actually being the lucky country. We enjoy the most livable cities in the world, you know? Yeah, like I can so, see Sydney so hasn't won that tag in a while with good that's reasons. That, yeah, it's, mm. a good, uh, it's a good example. Sydney has not managed well the increase of densities. A lot of mistakes have been made. It's very unattractive in some areas, and it's unaffordable. So we're going to have to be sure that other cities do not go down this path. Otherwise, we're not the lucky country anymore. Well, I think there's definitely an argument that we might have already passed a tipping point on that. Um, but in, uh, for example, there are some things. I was wondering, because does it, you know, you're talking about purpose-built villages within a city, but where I live in the inner west of Sydney, I've seen an enormous change in the last few years just because things like um, wine bars, music places mm. and coffee shops, which are the only businesses Australians seem to be able to <laughs> maintain for any length of time, um, are opening and keeping people in our area. And I guess also, you know, the age and, and having kids, everyone's staying that little bit more locally. We do have some decent bike tracks. So it feels like there can be this organic um, development, but it, it yeah. does definitely need a, a push as well. It's called transit-oriented development. Amy alluded to that already, where you have close access to public transit, mm -hmm. to transport, and you have a choice of different transport modes. Okay, well, Amy, tell us about it. Well, TODs, as they're called, transit-oriented developments, um, they address what's called the first mile or the last mile problem. So this is the difficulty that people have in making their way to public transport. And so the idea here is that people will only typically walk 400 to 800 metres to catch a train. And so TODs really aim to address that problem. And are they going off or are they a theory? Um, no, no, I mean they're happening. Bowdoin's an example of one that's going to happen. Green Square in Sydney is a very successful example, and we've got many of those. Brisbane has uh, managed to build some of those, mm. and Fortitude Valley and other places. Very successful. If they would not have done those, traffic would be even worse. Okay, so but um, to go hand in hand with that is we need reliable, frequent public transport. And so in some sense, as a critical mass, 
for cities. Mm. Um, Adelaide's a good example of where on the weekends, buses and trains can run very infrequently, that it's just easier to go and get in the car and drive somewhere. Mm. And so cities need to have this critical mass to support very efficient public transport systems. And so it could be part of the solution as well. We need we need that ridiculous growth in population to get ridiculously good public transport. Amy makes an important point, meaning cities can't be too small, otherwise they risk to stay insignificant and they cannot afford, because they don't have the critical mass and the population density. Let me give you an example. If you live somewhere in a suburb, you can't even expect a bus running in your suburb because there is no population density that would allow the government and the municipality to run a public transport system in such low density of let's say 10 or 20 habitants per hectare. That's hopelessly too low. Mm -hmm. So we're gonna have to increase where we have already built up areas, we're gonna have to increase density and we shouldn't uh, shy away. Let me give an example on that. Uh, if we go to Europe, we love to visit London. London has 100 people per hectare. We have here in Adelaide, we have 22 people per hectare. When we go from London to Paris, Paris has 150 people per hectare. Nobody ever told me it's too dense or dangerous. Mm -hmm. In fact, everybody likes the vibrancy of Paris that you can walk around everywhere. And if those then violins playing. That's They're right, really nice that's right. And if we go yeah. then to Barcelona and we go up and down the Ramblas, Barcelona has 170 people per hectare. Now this is what, this is like, almost 10 times mm. as much as Adelaide. And everybody's favorite city, Berlin? Berlin is somewhere between Paris and mm. Barcelona. I didn't know it's everybody's Not favorite geographic. city. Oh, yes, totally. <laughs> the the, the pre-wall or after, uh, post-fall of the wall? Post-89, yeah. Yeah, okay. I mean, it was a very different city yeah. uh, when I arrived. Okay, the wall all was right, sorry, that was a bad question. <laughs> <laughs> we won't go there. Um, now, Amy, we've talked about public transport, but you know, Australians, uh, we love our private transport. Um, what's, what's the solution here? And I do say that as a loaded question as an early adopter of electric vehicles and then an early unadopter, not so much later. Um, but please, talk us through how you see private vehicles in Australia. Well, you can't solve mobility problems by giving everyone a car, right? Even an electric vehicle. So the solutions are going to have to be a bit more innovative than that. And a good example is car sharing schemes. So uh, the average car in the developed uh, in the developed world is used about three percent of the time. So ninety-seven percent of the time, that car is sitting there, not doing its primary purpose, which is to transport people. So car sharing schemes are going to be a very interesting way of moving forward on this. I think owning a car is going to become an antiquated idea. Like owning a home in Sydney, yes. <laughs> and if you, um, if you kind of team car sharing schemes with driverless cars, which are coming, then you can imagine this system where this car is actually always being used. It, it takes someone to their destination, smart scheduling gets that car to the next person who wants to be picked up and kind of works as a more individual uh, mass transit system. I agree, we, we won't get rid of the car, but what we really are looking at as urban designers is car reduced. Mm -hmm. uh, car, the car in future has to be electric and it is only one way for mobility of many, many options we're gonna have to embrace from 
electric assisted cycling, which is much better, I think, and walking, uh, so we need to turn urban villages into walkable precincts, low carbon walkable precincts mm. that generate their own energy. We, we shouldn't also forget uh, the question of waste and water. Mm. If we speak about energy and transport, waste, water, food, where does the food come from? How can we close the loop, the cycling, uh, of composting, for instance, very important for the future of the city. So we, is that being looked at, or in, in fact, I know it's being looked at, but is it being implemented anywhere where the, the, our compost doesn't just go into our worm farm to go on our homegrown veggies here, but a, a centralised collection and, and useful way of doing that that doesn't involve more emissions in getting the thing to where it's needed? Is that happening anywhere or is that more of a pipe dream? A lot has happened in Europe in so-called eco-city villages, eco-cities, uh, green districts, for instance, in Hanover, in Stockholm, in Dublin, there are areas that have been turned into um, uh, such green villages with a focus on holistic system, uh, re new urban system thinking, where mobility plays a major role, but ur also urban farming, create, produce the food locally within the city. And while we move to higher densities and more compactness, we also have more green space, very important. We always use um, rule of thumb at least 30 square meter green space per person. Um, it shouldn't be less than that. Uh, and it's possible because we, we need to think about gardens and community meeting places for older people. We have, of course, not spoken about the aging population. Demographic change, mm. there's climate change, global warming, but there's also demographic change. In future, WOMAT, WOMAT 2050 will be a festival for the elderly. Everybody will come in uh, in a wheelchair probably because we're gonna have to rethink WOMAT. We're gonna have many, many more older people, uh, not only because I'm gonna be 80 at that time or something, but we, we just have an explosion of the elderly at the moment happening and this is gonna change the way cities operate and the way we use and like to evolve the city. Uh, and it has to. We need new places. We haven't looked at that, but age-friendly precincts, mm. places that can deal with people that are 80, 90, 100 years old. Tom, as someone who recently went to his 50-year high school reunion, have you got a response to that? Well, I guess one good thing about uh, going around in wheelchairs is that they're electrically powered. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> and, you know, plug-in wheelchairs is probably a good idea. And it gets down to personal transport at the minimum level. Everybody has a wheelchair, you know, and they're they're bumping into each other like Dodgem cars are, are, are you know, in the streets of Adelaide. The Razor scooter of the so, future. I mean, there's a nice image there. But uh, you know, we're gradually getting towards the issue of, of reliable energy supply. Mm. And, uh, and, and I'll, I'll kind of jump into it uh, in terms of uh, the different energy options that might be out there, given that one thing we want to do is reduce the emissions of greenhouse gases and make the climate of the world uh, not increase so rapidly as it is doing now. Um, and um, one, one of the ideas, okay, so let, let me just say that there are problems with renewable energy because renewable energy is intermittent. The sun doesn't shine in the night time, the wind doesn't blow all the time, so there's a real issue of where and how can we store the energy to fill the gap. If we there were to go completely to renewable, then we'd have to have very efficient storage mechanisms. And one of the options that's been put out is to use electric vehicles as a, dis a huge distributed mm. storage method. Uh, 
And I, I mean, you probably know more about that than I do, and I'd only heard about this quite recently. Uh, I, and I think there are some you know, practical issues uh, with regard to this, but it does relate to the fact that electric vehicles, and vehicles in general, of course, but electric vehicles are not going to be used 100% of the time. No. So, and they have these big batteries, so you know, why not use those batteries to some good effect? Just um, spell out a bit about this the smart grid system where, um, where uh, w electric vehicles are used to store, um, for example, solar-generated power. Well, actually, the point I was going to make is that with this variable renewable energy is that we now need to be thinking about coordinating the charging. So our electricity systems are designed for peak demand, right, for the few days of a year um, that are particularly hot. And most of the time, we don't get anywhere near that peak demand. So in South Australia, the mean demand on the electricity network is about half of mm. the peak demand. So actually there's an opportunity here to use that spare energy that's that's in there and uh, coordinated charging is the way to do it. So to give you an example, there are some appliances in your home, an electric vehicle um, as well, that you can decide when to, ch when to, um, when to use them. So uh, dishwashers or washing machines, um, these are things that can be time shifted. So you should shift them into the, the period, the evenings, when there's a lot of capacity in the electricity network. Although if we move to renewables, the capacity um, peaks are going to vary depending on where you are and where your energy is being sourced from. So we've had reports like um, Beyond Zero Emissions, which, um, which clearly states a case for uh, renewables being able to deliver 100% uh, of energy needs in Australia. But Tom, I know that um, you've got a different uh, approach to, um, to how our energy needs could be met. Well, I don't think we should close the door on any method of uh, producing energy that doesn't pollute the atmosphere in one way or another. Uh, and so that just opens up a rather controversial issue, and that's nuclear. Uh, there's legislation introduced in Australia in 1999, uh, you know, basically to get et extra votes, I think, uh, where... Uh, that's unusual, to introduce yeah, legislation to get extra votes. Yeah, I know, politicians very votes. rarely work mm. that way, I'm sure. But... Uh, it does happen, and you know there's an instance when it did. And uh, that legislation forbids building a nuclear power station in Australia. It doesn't forbid doing other things in the nuclear cycle, like uh, you know storage of w nuclear waste and things like that. But but uh, but even so, there's a hurdle to jump there, which makes anything to do with nuclear rather difficult to introduce in the Australian system. Okay, but you've got a reason that you um, see nuclear as an have, having an important role in our energy future, a secure energy future. Um, just assuming, like, the, the, the withdrawal from nuclear by countries like Germany post Fukushima, you don't have those concerns because of the later generation um, nuclear reactors. Can you tell us yes, why you don't have those concerns? Make it clear. Okay, so um, there have been a number of accidents uh, and three main accidents in the nuclear industry worldwide, uh, and the most recent is Fu Fukushima. And, uh, I mean, that was really a, a chance event from nature. And they and do rather happen. And rather poor planning... Uh, of putting the diesel backup generators at ground level so they got flooded when the, you know, the walls were overtopped by the rising sea. Um, so that was you know, just bad decision making. Those reactors are what are called second generation reactors. They're 50, 60 year old technology. They've been improved over the years, but 
if you're really going to look at the future for nuclear, you need to look at modern day nuclear reactors. And uh, we now are building third generation nuclear reactors, which have the advantage that they are what is called passively safe. In other words, if anything goes wrong, no human intervention is required in order to close the system down. Um, beyond that, we also have fourth generation reactors that use uh, what are called fast neutrons. Uh, they have additional advantages. The most important advantage is that they are proliferation resistant. Uh, in 1993, four in the United States, the US Department of Energy had a big research program on fourth generation reactors that was shut down by the Clinton-Gore administration. Uh, and it was shut down, and, and basically, you know, this is putting a personal slant on it, but uh, Al Gore shared with a bunch of people involved in the Intergovernmental Panel on Climate Change the Nobel Peace Prize a few years ago. Well, you know, his flawed decision, along with Bill Clinton, to shut down that really successful DOE program in the USA, I think deserves an anti-Nobel Prize, uh, and probably right at the top of the list of the people I would choose to have an anti-Nobel Prize. Um, the thing about uh, that decision was that it was based on out-of-date information about the risks of proliferation with nuclear reactors. Fourth generation reactors, they do have a small amount of waste, but basically they recycle the waste uh, and use that to produce energy. Second generation reactors use less than 1% of the available energy in the uranium. Fourth generation reactors use more than 99%. So we're getting 99 times as much energy for the same amount of uranium, which has got to be a good thing. Okay, thanks, uh, Tom. Unfortunately, we, so we have not resolved the problem of disposing nuclear waste, and that's why oh, no. going no, the nuclear sorry. way is simply you a no-no. No, well, you're a lot you're of a lot of wrong. clever people <laughs> have discussed this for <laughs> 10 years, and this is why, for instance, Germany is entering the Energiewende and has already turned off seven of the 17 nuclear power stations that are exist in Germany. And what we have to do is we have to have bridging technologies and we have to be fully, uh, fully embracing renewables. And we only spoke about solar and wind, which is interesting. We always hear the same argument of the problem of solar and wind, but of course there's biomass, there's geothermal, there's hydro, and we can do many, many other things. This is where we also have a lot of innovation. Uh, the worst uh, would be going down the nuclear path for a wonderful country I love so much, like Australia, <laughs> which is lucky. We are still the lucky country. We haven't lost it yet. We still haven't engaged in nuclear. And why would we be so crazy as long as we have all this waste to dispose of? Um, Tom, do we need nuclear? Is nuclear essential? Uh, globally, I would say yes. In Australia, we can cope without nuclear, but I think there are considerable advantages of building nuclear reactors, fourth generation and third generation reactors in Australia. Uh, it, right now, like in South Australia, as you mentioned, we've got too much power. You know, we're, we're only using, well, uh, Amy mentioned, we're, uh, on average we're using about 50% of the power that we could get from gas and coal. Mm -hmm. uh, there are some interesting economic issues related to that that I think are you okay, know, counterproductive. But we don't but actually need it for Australia. You no, do feel we don't. it's but essential at some places. But this idea of waste, is, I mean, one of the things I did when I was living in America is I worked for the Nevada State Attorney General's office 
uh, arguing against the use of Yucca Mountain as a waste repository. Uh, and in fact, the Department of Energy, which has to justify that, that usage, uh, they really screwed up making the arguments and there were a lot of criticisms that could be leveled at that work. Eventually, uh, that possibility was shut down by uh, Obama uh, for political reasons, surprise, surprise, uh, but uh, fourth generation reactors burn the waste. But you do so you don't have to store reactors it. exist? Because you said third were being built, fourth are... Okay, so uh, the US Department of Energy had a uh, relatively small reactor uh, called EBR2, Experimental Breeder Reactor 2, that ran successfully for 30 years, no problems, and they did everything they could to make it fail, and, and you know basically they just couldn't do it. So there's a huge difference in the safety of these latest generation reactors, and that's what we've got to think about. Right. Well, I think not so much anymore now. We've spent quite a bit of time on it, but I did want to, to raise it. Um, now, I would like to move to uh, developing countries, and you know, because we've been looking at very urban Australia before we go to questions. Um, in particular, transport in developing countries and, and the development of uh, these mega population centres. Amy. Well, this is a very interesting question because we think we can do away with the car, so the future is carless, but actually the car is the problem, but it's also the solution in many environments. So UniSA have been working um, with a non-government organisation in Zimbabwe, um, and that project is aimed at getting expectant mothers to hospital on um, in time to deliver. So traditionally what happens is that women give birth in remote villages because they don't have transport uh, to get to um, health clinics. In that environment, electric vehicles are exactly the solution we need. So Zimbabwe has an abundance of sunshine, just like Australia, um, and it's going to solve a key problem with their population. Mm. I'm very and glad you mentioned the developing world because a lot of my work is based actually overseas in um, the Asia Pacific. Um, and uh, other places, South, uh, South America a lot. Uh, you know, I always say the chance for uh, developing countries is to go straight from no energy to clean energy mm. and not waste the time. And we see this happening now where, in, for instance, in Kenya and Nigeria, everybody has now, almost everybody has a mobile phone, which is fantastic. They did not go through the hundred years that we had in the developed world where we put copper in the ground and running from house to house in the air to create landlines. They never had telephone landlines. They went straight from no telephone mm -hmm. to mobile phones. So there was not this gigantic waste of rare earths, metals, and copper wasted to create landlines, which we today also don't uh, need anymore. And in fact, next week I'm going to spend a week in Tibet. Mm -hmm. And in Tibet is a very interesting project where we work on zero waste management, zero waste Tibet, zero waste Lhasa. 50 years ago, Lhasa had no waste. It's very, very intriguing to study the history of Lhasa, not only because of the Dalai Lama, but also the old ways where everything was composted and recycled. Everything they made was made of timber, of wood, or leather, or stone, or metal. And everything could be recycled, or organics was put back into the soil where the nutrients were returned to the soil as fertilizer, as composting. So there was not such a thing as waste. If you go to Laza now, every hotel is advertised as ecotourism. 
if you go around the corner of the monastery or the hotel, you see mountains of plastic waste. You see electric e-waste, like old computers and copy machines, floating in the river where all the drinking water comes from. Toxic waste, industrial waste, it's all heavily polluted. It did not exist 50 years ago, and we're trying to fix that problem. So a lot of our work is in the developing world where you can make very quickly a wonderful difference. And so a lot of the plans for us down the track can be implemented in developing countries now and lessons learned there for the implementation brought back here because it is all about us. Let's not forget that. No, not at all. Um, ladies and gentlemen, it's time for your questions. We do only have um, just under 15 minutes. So please, we'll get the microphones and don't ask your question until the mic gets to you. So, Thanks for a very stimulating um, discussion. Um, I've got a question about behaviour change. I'm currently working in Cambodia where um, they're just trialling public transport and before that I worked in Bangladesh where it's an absolute mess. I mean the city's imploding on itself. Um, do any of the panel members have any experience, some positive experience um, preferably, about how do you change behaviour quickly because um, I work in development and it takes a very, very long time. A lot of the innovation has to be in behaviour change now these days because this is the low-hanging fruit. Uh, technology always costs a lot of money. If you change values of people, you can achieve much more in no time at no cost, which means education, incentives we heard about, but also I can tell you a story. I've just been recently in China again, and I spoke to 25 young Chinese people in Chongqing, which is a, a large city remote in the West, and I asked them, what do you want? 25 young architecture students told me we want the American way of life, which we see every day on television, which means a big car driving everywhere, the car driver's freedom, a second fridge, cheap air travel all the, all the time to everywhere, <laughs> air condition in every room. Have this they is seen what they the waistlines that go along? Not no. yet, and this is what they, what they dream about, so we have to change their values, and we have to make them understand how uh, it got us in trouble, and they are not necessarily having to repeat all our mistakes. However, morally we cannot step in and say, you cannot have a car, you cannot have a second fridge. So we must be very clean and careful how we do that. And, I and think we can talk more later about that. The answer there is no. There is no easy way to um, make behavior change. It's very it tricky. The, it is the hardest and... and yeah. There is something called the rebound effect. If you tell people, I now you have a car that needs less fuel, they say, oh great, I can drive more. Mm -hmm. This is the, the, the Jefferson uh, principle, yes. the rebound effect. Okay, and we must just keep going quickly. Yes, My you've got the My question is how you can interrogate the advisors to the Prime Minister who uh, he appoints someone who's against renewables to be in charge of that panel. Donald Horne actually finished his sentence saying, we're a lucky country in the hands of second-rate people. Um, and that's, you know, the fact. And so we have the climate change advisor to the Prime Minister who has want, doesn't want a wind farm on his mansion. Um, Occam's Razor two weeks ago had a professor called Mark Deason. We, we do just need to get okay, to a well, question. Well, the question is, why, why isn't there more interrogation of these advisors? Why, why doesn't the public know who's telling the Prime Minister all this stuff? Do we have a response? Uh, you all actually, that the panel... Uh, that is going to advise for the white paper on the security of energy in Australia uh, is sadly, I think, dominated by the oil, uh, gas and coal industry. So there's, I think there are nine advisors and then a government chair and four of those nine are 
oil, coal or gas. So I think that's a bad thing. Right. Let's see if we can get an an a question that we can answer. Um, so <laughs> we've got some rippers. Yes, sorry. Yeah. Um, I think there's a conflict between the planning law and the capacity to have high-density living in the cities. Because if you look at Adelaide, its unique selling point is the heritage buildings, the livability, the walkability. If you introduce 17, 20-storey high-rise buildings in the CBD, you end up with the greeny climate change activists with their compost pots in the garden being overshadowed by 17-storey buildings, and that's a recipe for disaster. Thanks for this comment. Uh, this is a big new debate. You're just opening 5 to 12, and I'm told we have to leave the sofa in five minutes. Look, nobody should do high-rise 17, 20-storeys. This is not sustainable. If you have energy blackouts, you can't use the building. It's totally dysfunctional because you can't go 20-story staircase up and down. I'm very much advocating five to 10-story buildings and more compactness. At the same time, increase green space. And you're right, the walkability and the heritage is wonderful. Therefore, we should be very careful what we do in North Adelaide, and we should maintain the green belt, which is the parklands. We should not touch that but we can have higher compactness carefully, inserted better urban infill in the CBD, and even the inner suburbs around, like Norwood, Payneham, St. Peter's, for instance, or City of Charles Sturt. So no 20 stories is the answer there, yes. And down here, thank you. Hello. Um, with so much pseudoscience, lollipop science, superstition, and everything else liking to get on the bandwagon, how do you find out, um, how do you personally, all three, work out um, scientific method with integrity and good results. Uh, what's been done, I would suggest that you go to um, the Australian Climate Council who put out reports that are very accurate science and very rigorously determined. I would also suggest that you look at the CR CSIRO and Bureau of Meteorology's recent report. Um, so go to organisations who are established and uh, can show their credentials and we'll move to the next question. Thank you. Yep. Yes? Oh, thank you very much to the panel. Um, one, of the, one of the cultural icons that Australians have is we like to get in the cars and drive around long distances to visit this wonderful country. Now, I can understand the future in cities where we're going to have mass transit to move around the city, but how are we going to move long distances like we do now in, in the future? In the fast train from <laughs> Brisbane down to Adelaide. Yeah. <laughs> I think perception doesn't always match reality. So in Adelaide, m more than 95% of vehicles travel less than 100 kilometres in a day. Um, and so we need to be thinking that perhaps for those few times a year that we want to go long distances or we want to tow a caravan or we want to you know, take something on the roof rack, that's when we need to go and hire a car. Well, I have to say, after I've owned an electric vehicle for two years, which was fantastic when it worked, it was a prototype, so it had some problems. Since we got rid of it two years ago, we've only had um, a car share which and bicycles, which works spectacularly because you only use it when you need it. You don't get these legs from driving a petrol vehicle, <laughs> I tell you. And... Uh, and um, it, it works really well. And then we, we do car swap and car share when, when we need to go further afield. So it does actually work, yes. About the role of government in achieving urban villages so that you don't have this high density and the sort of uh, total demolition of, of street life. One of, the, one of the economics underlying this, if you're talking about workability, walkability and livability, where are the economics of transplanting populations so you get the critical mass to support it? 
Yeah, very good point. We're going to have to put higher compactness, I call it. I never use the D word, density. It's always making people jump up. We have to have more compactness where we have already the infrastructure in place. So we make more use of the existing infrastructure and then improve the infrastructure. And of course, on the long run, we need a new type of green infrastructure. We need to entirely reconceptualize our cities. We haven't spoken much about that. But the city district becomes the power station, where the city district becomes the water catchment and the food supply source. This gentleman is trying to say something since 10 yes, minutes. Yes, we've got um, one question down there, and then we're coming to this gentleman. So one here first. Uh, surely the actual number of people in the world is one of the biggest problems. Why don't we just reduce the population or reduce half the problem? And how would you do that? Hey, well, I, let, can I make a comment? Yep. Can I make a comment there? Okay, I mentioned the UN population report that comes out every two years. They give, they actually give three projections. Uh, one is a low projection, a medium, and a high projection. That's pretty obvious. Uh, the low projection shows population in 2100 less than today. So you know that is a possibility that without having to introduce. Uh, you know, Ebola. authoritarian demands on on number of children that you're allowed to have. Uh, it is likely that as people get richer, they have less children, and so the population in this low projection goes down to 6.4 million uh, by 2100. And so I that might just happen spontaneously. I think the short answer is you educate women. Is the other thing that's been found yeah. to vastly reduce population. And time for our final question. Hi, look, my question was going to be about population as well, but more specifically about Australia. Um, currently, our population is increasing by about a million every five years or so. We have a high migration rate, Im immigration rate. Um, I was wondering whether or not we should slow that down until we get better at building sustainable cities. Because right now, even though we have transport-orientated developments, they're still few and far between. The majority of developments, especially in places like Melbourne and Perth, is still suburban sprawl and pretty bad high-rise tilt-up, pretty ugly stuff. We're not doing a very good job. We're not looking like Paris yet in the way we do our Australian cities. So I was thinking, should we slow immigration down and give us enough time to catch up with how we develop sustainably in a more sustainable way? Look, I'd just say I think necessity is the mother of invention, right? So, you know, if we have large populations, we will work out a way to transport them around. We should not uh, slow it down because we have to stay competitive. And we actually get a highly skilled workforce here coming from all over the world. Uh, and this is very exciting. And it's good to be part of a growing country. Uh, you see, the Chinese have just done away with the one-child policy because now they get frightened that there are fewer and fewer to pay the pensions in future. Hang on a sec. Yeah. Sorry, with I'm aging sorry, population, you have a With the aging population, you need young people that pay the pension when you want to be a pensioner. Ladies and gentlemen, that's all we have time for, but I would like to get a, a closing comment. Um, if there was a take-home message from today for, these, uh, for the growing city populations for, our, for the future. Well, I've got a take-home take message that we actually didn't talk about, and that is, the future climate of cities or the globe as we continually produce greenhouse gases from energy production. And just to give you some scary numbers, um, the, the range of possible warming over the next um, 75 years or so varies at the lowest possible end of about one degree Celsius, which is more than we've observed over the last 100 plus years up to something like five degrees Celsius, 
you know, which would be six times the rate of warming over the last hundred years. That's fairly scary. But what's and and the low level would stabilize the climate of the Earth's system. At, uh, maybe it's not achievable, but at least it's possible on paper. But what's really scary to me is that sea level does not stabilize. It's in, we would have to bring our carbon dioxide concentration back to the pre-industrial level or even less to stabilize sea level and sea level would still rise by about 20 centimetres before it stabilised. So if you want a call to action, I think we've just had it from Tom. Now, a, a, uh, a take-home message that gives us some hope for the future. Uh, Amy? I think small individual change is going to be as important as large government changes as well. So if you think about transport, um, what do we do day to day? We can think about making small changes. So reduce the distance we travel, chain our trips together, try and make one of those trips, um, short trips on, uh, on a bike or walk. And um, from the larger scale side of things, we can make more smart informed purchasing decisions. So the average Australian private dwelling has 1.7 cars per household. So maybe when we buy a new car, we need to think seriously about whether that car can be an EV. Um, even if you go and buy a new car, um, if you choose the best in the fleet, in, in 2012, you would have reduced the new car emissions to by 40%. So it just makes a huge, um, a huge impact, all these small individual changes people can make. And voting with the dollar. Just Stefan. in the nutshell, my last words are, greenhouse gas emissions are not going down, they're going up. Since 25 years, we discussed the need to reduce greenhouse gas emissions. The opposite is happening, and they are accelerating going up, and with all the impact on climate Tom already described. So two things I would like to suggest. One is leadership. We need very good, strong champions and leaders, and I can't see it happening, unfortunately, too much at the moment. The second thing, support your researchers better. People like us, and what would you expect from a professor at a <laughs> university? We are not doing well. We only pay around 0.8% of the GDP into our research in R&D at the moment from our GDP. This is appalling. Even China does 2.2% and they raise it to 2.5%. We're going to have to pay our researchers well to be more innovative. Everybody's whinging about Australia not being innovative and manufacturing and all the issues because we don't support the innovators. Well, we have it there. <laughs> That's as eclectic a note to leave it on as any, I think. Ladies and gentlemen, would you please thank me for helping us explore this topic this afternoon? Tom Wrigley, Amy Albrecht and Stefan Lehman.